Well, good morning. So good to see you. I want to say good morning to those in our classic service and those online. Um, we are a church that strives to be simply about Jesus because we believe, because scriptures teach us this and show us this, and we've heard it through other people's stories, that when you encounter Jesus, it changes everything. I'm excited for this morning for a slew of things, but first and foremost, before we get into the text, um, church, I want to introduce to you uh, the Castle family. So I'm going to invite up uh, Kel and Courtney and Amazing Judah on up, and it's, I think it's appropriate for us to celebrate God's faithfulness. As we've been in a season of mourning the transition of Lucas Jackson and Melissa Jackson as they transitioned from our youth pastor position, we saw God's faithfulness preparing and uh, like surprisingly bringing back someone who apparently is uh, well-known here, which I, I, I don't know you, but you are well-known here. Historical. Historical. It's like a legend. But it's amazing, and so it's legend, so legendary. I've never heard the stories. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but it really is amazing when you start to see how God lines things up and how God draws and God calls people into it. And so um, I got to hear a little bit about Kel um, primarily through his journey here at Austin Oaks, where he was a student from an intern. And one of our things that we say and we value here is that we want to reach every generation, right? We need every generation to reach the next generation. And here's a young man who's been invested in by multiple people in this church who now God has set up to lead the next generation. Super excited about that. Got to hear amazing things about Courtney. You know, obviously would have to from what I heard about this list. Legendary man, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, super excited to get to see Judah grow up in the church and all that stuff. And and I got to know a little bit about Kel and his heart for the youth. And one of the things that um, that shapes us in this season is Judges two ten that we don't want to see another generation coming up that do not know the ways of the Lord or what the Lord has done. And that is a, a shared burden on Kel's heart and, and Courtney's heart as well. And so we are excited about that. And so church, I want to encourage you just as an act of, of blessing, would you stand with me? We want to pray over the Castle family as they uh, launch into this season. Yeah of shepherding our youth and our next generation. So if you feel comfortable, I encourage you, just extend your hand as a sign of blessing as we pray over the Castro family. Father, I thank you for this. Hey, bud. Yeah. I thank you so much, first and foremost, for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for the Jackson family. We thank you for their years of faithfulness and service. And Lord, we continue to ask that you would bless them as they are up in Fargo, North Dakota. Lord, we pray now a special blessing and anointing and that my finger doesn't get eat, bit off by Judah. <laughs> Love it. Lord, I just ask, Lord, that you, would, that you would bless this family with your spirit. That in this season, you would give them extra measure of your grace and faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would extend um, favor in the schools and favor with our middle schoolers and favor with the high schoolers, Lord. I ask that um, Courtney and Kel in their home would be full of hospitality and love. Lord, I pray that through them, they, the students would come to know Jesus. That they would be captivated by Jesus. And that the next generation would be marked by your love. Lord, thank you. For the castos, thank you for your faithfulness. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Let's thank the Lord for that. 
<laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I love it. Um, another reason why I'm excited is there's a few things that are being um, launched this season starting in February. And I know you're going to hear more about this as the days come forward, but I just want to throw these out there so you can start to mark this on your calendar. Part of our rhythm as a church is we would do like once a month prayer gatherings, and we would typically do that the last week of the month, but we're going to flip it. So now you can mark ahead of time every Thursday, the first Thursday of every month starting February 2nd at 7 p.m., we're going to start these things called Revival Nights. And the reason why we're calling it or a revival night is primarily that God would stir up our hearts again and revive our hearts and revive the church and also to bring people to know Jesus. So what you can expect those nights is worship, prayer, and we're going to teach through the book of Revelation. So if you are interested in that, I want to encourage you to come to it. So the first Thursday of every month, we're going to do revival nights. Now the second Thursday of every month, this Thursday, that thir- blah, 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 the Thursday in February, second one, the ninth. You got that? <laughs> that was clear as mud. So February 9th, we're going to have our men's gathering at 7 p.m. So if you are a man, I want to encourage you, come to that. Okay, we had a preview. We stirred up the pot in December. But I want to encourage you to come to that as we're going to focus on what does it mean to be a man after God's heart? What does it mean to stand in the gap? What does it mean to be a man of integrity? And I'm telling you, our culture and our world need men to love Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to show up. And also, men, every Monday at 7 a.m., a bunch of us guys have committed to prayer. So every Monday at our chapel at 7 a.m., we want to invite you to come and pray. You can stay the whole hour. You can show up at 7.30 and pop in on your way to work. But we want you to be there to pray because we do believe that when we pray, God moves. Also, on February 7th, which is a Tuesday at 7 p.m., the women are also having a gathering, which is, yeah. I'm totally there. Um, just, it's going to be one of those mornings, guys, okay? Like, I want to encourage you to come. And the reason why we're doing all of these things is that we feel compelled to simply create environments where, one, we can encounter Jesus, but, two, where we can start to take our next steps in building a foundation of becoming a discipleship movement. Because discipleship is the mandate in the mission that Jesus gave the church. And so this year, we are asking you to say yes to discipleship, which means then you got to say no to some other things in your life that you might consider a priority. So February 2nd, Revival Night. February 7th, Women's Gathering. February 9th, Men's Gathering. Awesome? Great. There's your current events. Chad, you don't need to come up. Um, All right, Matthew 9. Let's go to Matthew 9. We are in this series called The Table is Set. And last week we were talking about coming to Jesus' table. We looked at Psalm 23.5 and just thought and sat on the concept that the Lord prepares a table before us. And understanding that that is an invitation that is extended to us all the time. Now this morning we are going to be looking at the table that we're going to call the sinner's table. 
Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but to those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, we come in your name this morning. And we ask for your spirit to open our eyes to see the beauty of your son, Jesus. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of grace and mercy and truth? Holy Spirit, would you convict us of sin, convict us of areas of judgment, convict us of areas where we live and operate in social categories, convict us of areas of prejudice, convict us of areas of racism. Holy Spirit, we want to be like your son, Jesus. So stir in us, Lord. Speak. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Raise of hands. Everybody's got to participate online. I know you're at home by yourself. Classic. Please join. Raise of hands. How many of you like to eat? Yeah. That's great. We, we all do. How many of you, now raise your hands again, how many of you randomly throughout the day or maybe throughout the week, you find yourself just by happenstance in front of the fridge or the pantry? And you just open the door and you stare at it and you shut it with nothing? And you ever like have those moments where you're like, what am I doing? My kids say that to me all the time, like, Dad, you're at the pantry again. And they're always like, Dad, when you're at the pantry, you're always doing this. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. But, like, I understand it, and I get it if you think about it, right? Like, how, like how many meals a day do you, on average, eat? Like, three? Who's a three-meal-a-day kind of person? Okay? Awesome. Two? I'm totally like a, a two, maybe one and a half type of meal person. But I'm telling you, that one meal, it's all three combined in one. Just, just saying, hey, yes, I know, it's unhealthy, blah, 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 whatever. On average in America, the average American, 64% of average American adults eat three meals a day. So 64% of the Ameri uh, average adult, 28%, two meals a day. So if you were to take that, that's roughly the average American eats 2.8 meals a day. Now for fun, 93% of American adults snack two to three times a day. So that means on average, we have 5.7 eating occasions in a day, okay? Some more, some less. Now, if you do the math, that's roughly 20 meals a week, okay? 20 meals a week, 85 meals per month, 1,022 meals a year. 2,080, if you were to include snacks, eating occasions. 
we have a little bit of an eating desire, right? Like we need to eat. And some of us eat more than we should. But it's like we, we have that natural inclination. So let me ask you this question and make a hard turn. How many of those meals that you have in a year, do you intentionally invite someone far from God to experience Jesus' invitation? How many of those meals do you intentionally invite someone far from God in order to hear Jesus' invitation to his table? Jesus was and still is a controversial figure. He never played to the games or catered to the games of the religious, political. He never gave in to the social categories or structures. He was one who constantly displayed grace and mercy and never shied away from speaking the truth to anyone. But it was always filtered through grace and mercy. His interpretation of the scriptures rattled many cages, and his sermons were lightning rods. His miracles either drew people to God or pushed people away from God. He casted out demons. He touched the unclean and the lepers, and claiming that because of his arrival that the kingdom of God is near. He was controversial. But as beautiful and as tension-filled as his message was, nothing drew as much criticism, as much angst, as much vitriol than who he ate with. Think about that for a moment. Because in that culture, in that time, the table was defining It was absolutely defining. It was culturally defining, socially defining, politically defining, religiously defining, because you would have fellowship with people who are like you, because let's just be honest, it's human nature to have an in-group and an out-group. Jesus understood this. So let me ask you this question. How does your table define you? How does your table fellowship, either literally or symbolically, who you accept, who you welcome, who you relate to, how does it define you? Now, I'm not talking about what you eat or what you don't eat. I'm not saying, you know, yeah, I'm a vegan, so that defines me. No, I'm not talking about that. Nor am I talking about, like, how much you eat at the table. What I'm talking about is how do you use the table, relationships, and how does that reflect the heart and the purpose of Jesus or the lack thereof? The table is a focal point in the Gospels. In fact, like when we were going through Luke, I don't know if you ever caught this, Jesus was either going to a meal, coming from a meal, inviting someone to a meal. The table was front and center because table fellowship was a social statement in that time about yourself and about your guests. It was a place that defined who's welcomed and who's accepted and who's not. So back in the first century, and let's just be honest, this dynamic is still prevalent today because who we eat with and where do we eat and where we even sit at the table actually creates categories. It ranks people. 
Because it's like who I associate with. Am I eating at a five-star restaurant or am I constantly going through Burger King? Who are you with? I was always frustrated as a kid. Always frustrated as a kid. The Ziski clan, there was a lot of grandkids. And I was the youngest. And I always, 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 always had to sit at the kids' table. And that always made me mad. Because I'm like, stop seeing me as a kid. Right? Like even when I was in high school, I was at the kids' table. It was frustrating. I didn't want to be there. Like the table is a reflection of who's in and who's out. But like if we were to go another layer further, the table and who's around our table is oftentimes a symbol of economic categories, ethnic affiliation, political affinity, racial issues, racism, and all sorts of other social categories are all revealed at that table. The table then and is still now a powerful symbol of acceptance. It's a powerful symbol of belonging and welcome. Do you know that we all have a deep human need to belong? Like it is part of our emotional DNA. And it's because we're created in the image of God. We are intimately formed to have a desire for relationship and community, which is where we have this, like, this intrinsic value to want to be accepted, to belong. Like think about this for a moment. Why did you connect yourself to certain groups or sports or affiliations growing up and all through that process? Right? Like we all get ourselves involved with certain friend groups because we want to belong to the degree that we're willing to even compromise parts of ourselves, even willing to act immorally in order to fit, in order to belong, in order to have somebody see us and to accept us. That's how powerful belonging is. We will even pick up the, the, the vernacular of that group. Like, I remember in high school, like, my freshman year, I hate skateboarding. Like, I, I, do, I can't skateboard. Every time I get on a skateboard, within five feet, I'm on my butt. Like, I, I, there was a few guys that were a part of the skater group in high school, and I wanted to be their friend. And so I started dressing like them, and I bought a skateboard, and I got the chain wallet, you know. But that changed once I found another group that I wanted to be part of. And I got rid of my chain wallet. We all do this. I mean, look at all of the social trends and phenomenon. Like, that is why people do what they do. Sexuality and, and transgenderism and LGBT. I'm going places this morning, people. Just... Like, a lot of people, like, are, like, legitimately struggling with it, but then there are other kids in, in our younger generations that are caught up in it because they are part of that social movement, and so they want to belong, and so they either accept, adopt, or change. Belonging is significant to the human heart. There's a deep ache and sickness in the humanity's heart when it comes to this. We long to be accepted. And that's why table fellowship is so powerful. It either reinforces the categories and the boundaries that we have created or our culture has created, 
Or we embrace the gospel's values where it says every mountain will be made low and every valley will be raised up. Where there's neither free nor Jew, male nor female, no black, white, or brown, neither whatever. We're all the same. The table is significant. It's powerful. There's a longing And that longing for belonging is so much deeper than any superficial acquaintance. Because what people really want, what we really want, is grace and mercy in light of the truth of who we are. We want to be seen. We want to be known. We want to be understood. And we want grace and mercy and compassion. Social media was supposed to be the remedy to social belonging. It was supposed to be the tool that scratches the itch and solves this problem. But all we know now, we know clearly that it exasperates the issue. If people don't have a place to belong, we now know scientifically, psychology teaches this, that people then slip into anxiety, depression, hopelessness, loneliness, social anxiety, and even suicidal ideation. Belonging matters. So that's why we need to talk about the table. So let's see how the table defined Judaism in Jesus' day. The Pharisees that we see in Matthew 9, where they were the conservative religious wing of Judaism at this point. And they used the table fellowship to uphold holiness and to show visibly who's part of the covenant community. So in order to share the table with a fellow Jew, you needed to be part of the covenant community. And if you weren't part of the covenant community, in other words, if you were a Greek, a Roman, a Samaritan, or a Gentile, you cannot eat at that table. And if you do eat with someone outside the covenant community, you are now also outside the covenant community. This issue was so significant that the Pharisees developed, like I said last week, 229 rules that applied to table fellowship from what you can eat, what you can't eat, to who you can be with, all the types of things. And the motivation on the surface was a little bit noble because they wanted to be holy. They understood the scriptures and they said that like if you obey, you will be blessed. And if you don't obey, you will be punished. And they're asking the question, why are we underneath Roman oppression? And they just summarized it and they deduced it's because we don't take holiness serious enough. And so they ramped it up and created all sorts of holiness rules just to protect it. So now along comes Jesus. Along comes Jesus, whose purpose statement could be summarized by two verses. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it could be said in Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, what is some of Jesus' key methods to fulfill this purpose. Primarily discipleship, but an essential tool that he used is found in Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. 
where his reputation was that of a drunkard. Think about that for a moment. Jesus oftentimes used the table as a means to reach people whom the religious structures and social structures have ridden off. He used the the table for people to experience grace and mercy because it was a sign of welcome. It was a sign of acceptance and belonging. Whereas the Pharisees began to use the table as a weapon to, uh, to reinforce the human categories that separate and divide. This is no small thing because the table really defined Jesus' mission. Who he invited to the table. right? It proclaimed to the world his heart. That he's willing to invite all who are willing to receive his invitation to come to his table. And this is why this story is so profound. Like I'm going to do my best to put ourselves into its context so we can feel what maybe the disciples felt and surely what the Pharisees felt. So let's look at this. And I want us to kind of put away some of our presuppositions as we maybe have heard some things before coming to this text, and let's just ask the Lord to give us new eyes here. As Jesus passed on from there, and from there meaning he's in Capernaum, and he just healed a paralytic, and where he also said, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, well, who are you to forgive sins? He's like, well, I have the authority to forgive sins to show you that, rise and walk. So they're coming from that, which obviously had to cause a commotion. So people are following Jesus in a crowd. Passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Okay. The tax booth is centered in one of the most populated and popular sections of Capernaum because Rome had to get its own and therefore Levi or Matthew had to make sure he was at a place where a lot of people were. So there's this crowd swarming and buzzing around Jesus. Like I can completely visualize this scene, okay? So Matthew, who wrote this gospel, that's crazy, is telling his own story, right? And like, I, I can imagine this, and I love just the description that he said. He's like, and when Jesus saw him, like, like I just imagine like in this moment as the crowd is coming, right? Like, like it's a massive crowd, and, and Matthew knows that the crowd hates him, and it's like no different. Let's just be honest. Like, we all have a little bit of an issue with the IRS, Right? Like universally, nobody likes a tax man. Right? And so like he's already knowing that he already has that going against him. Now this crowd shows up and then he sees Jesus and they lock eyes. Like I I imagine in that moment like Matthew just kind of going, please don't come here. Please don't come here. Like am I in trouble? Am I going to be like a sermon prop for something? Like all the types of things in that moment. What is Matthew feeling? What is he thinking? Is there fear? Worry? Is there even maybe like a little underlying sense of hope? Like there's absolutely no way that this is the first encounter Matthew has with Jesus. 
Like Matthew's been there at this tax booth for some time in Capernaum. And now we already know that Jesus previously healed people, taught amazing sermons. And this area where Matthew's tax booth was, was a very popular area where people would always spread the news of what happened. Surely Matthew knows all about Jesus. Their eyes lock. There's no way Matthew is feeling too excited here. Why? Because... The Pharisees and the Jews at that time, if you were to ask him who would represent evil, they would say this, tax collector. And Matthew is a tax collector. He's evil. You see, the Roman government, when it came into a region, it it auctioned off these abilities for people to be the tax collector. And Rome would just be fine. Whoever was the highest bidder, we would give you that post. And you just make sure you just raise enough tax to pay us. And we don't really care how much commission you make. Like, we don't care how much you tax people. In that day and age, people didn't get property tax bills in the mail to let you know how much it was. You had to go to the tax booth to find out how it was. And so there was mass extortion, mass robbery. Right? And so the Jews already had a problem with tax collectors regardless just because they found it an affront to Yahweh. He's king. He's God alone. He alone deserves my worship, which was connected to money. Hence why there was such an issue when the Pharisees came to Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It was an issue, so they already had that problem. Now, here's a Jew who betrayed his covenant, who's betraying God, who's partnered with Rome, the enemy, and is extorting and oppressing his own people and doesn't care. How would you feel towards Matthew? How would you feel? If I were honest, my feelings, I wouldn't want to say the words in public. Let's just be honest. These tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors, were excommunicated from worship, excommunicated from table fellowship. And I can imagine the disciples in this moment, Jesus, what's next on the agenda? You just healed a paralytic. Now where we're going? And Jesus is going, hey, we got to go to this place because I got someone else to invite Oh, awesome. Who? Is this someone with affluence? Is someone with this? No, it's Matthew, the tax collector. Imagine being a disciple. Uh, Jesus, I may not know a lot, but that's a horrible move. Like, first of all, we hate him. Second of all, if we're trying to win people, this is the worst way to do that. It will cause division. And in fact, they will start to hate you and slander you. And then in consequence, us too. So let's reconsider. <laughs> this invitation to Jesus was significant. Like when he said to Matthew, follow me, it wasn't just, hey, join the crowd. He was saying, I want you, evil man, who extort my people to be my disciple. And in consequence, I want you to then fish for people, to to be part of building the kingdom. And and I'm going to call you to be an apostle. 
I'm going to redeem your life and give you a purpose that you never had. You're going to be invited to my table. You're going to have a welcome and an acceptance and a belonging that can never be rattled or taken from you. You're going to experience grace and mercy. And out of my kindness and my love, you're going to be transformed. That's what that invitation is. Jesus saw something in Matthew that we need to see when we look at people who we despise. Who aren't like us. Who are on the out group. Who don't vote like us. Who are causing the moral fabric of America to deteriorate. We need to see people the way Jesus sees people. This is difficult. That's why I say this story is profound, it's encouraging, and it's deeply convicting. And I can't imagine from verse 9 to 10 that there was a whole lot of conversation going on between the disciples and Matthew. Because, nerd moment here, in the Greek when it says that Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, say, follow, there's a common Greek term that's in there that's wrapped up in the word call, which we find out the Greek word that's used there is the same word that's used when you invite someone over for dinner. So now the disciples go, oh, he's inviting the tax collector. Oh, but he's also inviting him and consequently us to table fellowship with him. That was the end of the disciples' public persona right there. You see, guys, Jesus isn't ashamed or embarrassed to eat with those people. He doesn't do it in secret. When he invited Matthew, Matthew immediately got up and followed him. He must have saw the beauty of grace and love in Jesus' eyes, that he no longer felt the fear of condemnation, that he left all to go follow Jesus, so moved that he invited the only group where he could find belonging to, to sit at this table with Jesus. And in verse 10, it tells us that they're reclining, which is a crazy image. They're not just sitting at chairs like at a formal dinner. They are literally laying down with their heads towards each other where it's super close. It's this picture of intimacy and friendship eating with tax collectors in a public area because now we know that people can see and hear. He's not embarrassed or ashamed to eat with those people. I mean, so don't you ever have that? Like if you eat or interact or do something with someone that we would say is sort of questionable, we kind of shy away from letting other people know about it. Jesus is like, because he don't play that game. You don't play that game. Verse 11. Oh man, I'm running out of time. When the Pharisees saw, the Pharisees saw, this isn't a dinner in an alleyway. They saw this. Obviously, there was rumor, the rumor mill was churning full steam. It had to be. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher, this isn't an actual question to want to know. This is like, we're judging you by this question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Whew. 
Jesus' form of discipleship is unexpected. It's shocking because he breaks down every barrier that we have created. Social, religious, ethnic, tears them all down. And at this table, the Pharisees have associated this connection that Jesus is condoning and in approval of Matthew's behavior. Why else would he sit there? Jesus replies, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. A child knows that. And then he insults them ever so subtly. Go and learn, Pharisees and scribes, you experts of the law. Let me quote the law to you, Hosea 6.6. 6. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, or religious performance. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's not saying the Pharisees are righteous. He's saying you guys think you're all good. I came to invite those who are willing to receive my invitation, those who know they are sick and in need of a doctor. Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Does he not know we're God's people? Why do doctors exist? Let's just play dumb for a moment. Why do doctors exist? Is it because everybody's healthy? I mean, like, it's so simple. No, because we get sick, we get hurt, we need a remedy, and we need a cure. If you can answer that question logically, then it would make sense why Jesus came. I came because humanity is sick, and that sickness is called sin, and there's only one cure for sin, and it's at my table, which is why I came. Yeah, but now is Jesus then saying that like their behavior is good and all accepting, you know, because we don't want to approve of those types of things. No, that's not it. I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person that like tends to want to avoid the doctor because I would rather choose to live in ignorance because I think I'm a walking bill of health. I just don't want to know. That's a little bit of a self-righteousness there, and that's what the Pharisees are displaying you see, the purpose of the table in the kingdom of God is to call sinners, sinners, those who are spiritually poor. If Jesus came to bring salvation, he needs to go to those who need it. And he extends that invitation to all. As we'll see next week, he does the same thing to the Pharisees. He does the same thing in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, another chief tax collector, where he says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Everything about Jesus can be seen at the table. It's there where he develops and shows the beautiful vision of the kingdom of God. Go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not religious sacrifice. This is the challenge I want us to land on this morning. Because I think we need as a church to dust this part of the gospel off. Go and learn what this means. 
Do you remember what it was like to receive Jesus' invitation to the table? When you received grace and mercy and forgiveness, when the guilt and shame and condemnation that plagued you was removed, where you finally felt free to be who you are and God loves you regardless and it's his love and his kindness that begins to cause us to move into acts of repentance and healing and transformation. Do you remember those moments? Do you remember the vision of the kingdom that it's all about one new humanity? Have we forgotten as a church that if we say we follow Jesus, that we learn from him? We do what he does. And if we follow Jesus, I guarantee you, he goes to where the sinners are. How does your table define you? Does it look like Jesus or does it look like the Pharisees? It's a challenge. Yeah, Brandon, you know what? I don't want to, though, appear like I agree or condone people's behaviors or lifestyles. I'm afraid that if I interact with them that they will think that or my other you know, Christian friends will think that. I don't want people to think this about me. I'm afraid of what the reputation will be said about me. Are we really, like, come on. If you've ever said that, like, are you really believing that if I or we show love to someone who is in need of the cure of sin, that we're condoning their behavior by sharing Jesus with them? So what's the real issue? Is that question or that excuse a deeper reflection of something sinister? In our hearts? Guys, I'm, I'm going places now. Don't email me. Email BJ. No, email Kel. <laughs> Is there something deeper and more sinister in our hearts? Is there prejudice there? Is there racism there? Judgment there? Self-righteousness there? Do we think there are people who aren't worthy of Jesus there? Think about all the social issues that have been front and center the last few years and how they have ripped families and friends apart. Are you willing to follow Jesus to the sinner's table with someone who is part of the LGBT community? Are you willing to follow Jesus to the sinner's table with someone who's transgender? With someone who voted for Trump? With someone who voted for Biden? With a vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, masker, anti-masker? Are you willing to follow Jesus to sit at the table with someone with a different skin color than you? Are you willing to offer people belonging, welcome, and healing as you point them to Jesus? Would Jesus do that? Are we following Jesus? 
and I can feel the tension a wee bit. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, great, we're becoming that church that tolerates sin. No, Jesus didn't tolerate sin. He invited people to the table so that he could first show grace and mercy and then start speaking truth. Do you think Jesus' conversations around the table were about the news of the day? Jesus is like, no, I came to do what's most important. I'm getting to your heart. He always showed grace and mercy and love and acceptance and then said, go and sin no more. The church has always wrestled with this. Exclusion and inclusion. Who should we be near? Who we shouldn't be near? Jesus said, be of the world but not, or be in the world but not of the world. But our fear is that we think that somehow our holiness will be contaminated by the world's sin. Friends, if that's your view, you have a weak view of holiness. Jesus' vision of holiness was powerful. His vision of holiness wasn't afraid that other people's sins and other people's issues would contaminate his holiness and drag him into their lifestyle. No, no, no. He had a vision of holiness that was so powerful and compelling that he would go to people and it would drag them into the kingdom. So we need to go and learn what this means. So here's a few suggestions. I know I'm long-winded here. I know, but I just, this is so important. Be with Jesus. Go and learn what this means. How do you do that? Be with Jesus. Be in the Gospels. Where does he go? Who does he associate with? What does he call us to do? Jesus came to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, where Paul says, this statement, I can't remember, I'm summarize it, is of like great importance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Like this, his name, Jesus, God saves. Like this is why he came. Friends, I don't know if you're aware, but we are coming up into a political cycle. How are you preparing your hearts? How are you going to guard your heart from wrapping yourself up into political idolatry with a little flavor of Christianity on it? Not to say it doesn't matter. It does matter. But we should think about it through the lens of discipleship. Like, how do we do this? Be with Jesus. Be with him. Second, examine yourself. Examine yourself. 1 Corinthians 11, the, the beautiful passage of coming to the Lord's table. For us, this is what we see communion as. A little sip and a little disgusting wafer. It's a symbol for us, but back then it was an actual meal around a table. And Paul had to rebuke the church in Corinth because they were polluting the Lord's table and how did they do that? They reinforced the very categories and divisions that the gospel destroyed. He said, the gospel, the Lord's Supper, is a reflection of the gospel where all of these things are destroyed. We are all one in Jesus. And you are reinforcing the world's categories around my table. 
And he says, check yourselves to see if you're in an unworthy manner. See if there's any sin inside of your heart. And then he says this crazy passage, which I have no time to explain. He goes, and this is why some of you are sick and dying. It's not unlike Ananias and Sapphira. It's not that God is mean. It's that he just knows how beautiful the Lord's table is. And that if we pollute it and we eat the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, we bring judgment on ourselves. So one way of checking that is, who are you praying for? Who are you willing to invite to your table? And that's why you have this card. Ask the Lord, who are three people that you can move towards? that you can pray for who don't know Jesus. And that leads me to the last thing. These names here, will you take one of your 21 meals out of the week and invite them to the table? Extend grace and mercy. Show them Jesus. So go and learn what this means. Be with Jesus. Examine your heart. And invite people to the table. So what I want to do in this moment is spend a time in worship and confession. So as the band sings this song, you can sing with, but I really want to encourage you to go, Lord, search my heart. Show me if there's anything sinister, dark, evil there? Have I ate and participated in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. And as that shows up, confess it. Confess it. And then towards the end of the song, we're going to do part two. I know, friends, listen, I know time is long, blah, 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 but listen to me. This is more worth than you trying to get to lunch. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And I promise you, next Sunday, I will cut the sermon 15 minutes short to compensate. <laughs> I confess I lie. But let's spend this time in confession. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would stir in our hearts. Show us areas in our heart where we need to confess, where maybe we have judged people, we have ignored people, we have um, lived in social categories, ethnic categories, or we're dividing people. Maybe we're too embarrassed or ashamed to move towards certain people. Holy Spirit, would you convict us of this sin? Refine us, purify us as a church so that we can look like you. And Lord, in that same vein, would you put names on our hearts of people who we are at work in, like Matthew, that we can intentionally pray for and extend a simple invitation to.
want to do now is on this sheet that she wrote down the names, I want you to, if you haven't done it yet, write down those names. Tear it off. This top portion you keep. Put it in a place where you can remind yourself to pray for, move towards. But what we want to do in this moment is for you to bring these names up to the front, symbolizing like you're laying these names down at the altar before Jesus. And we're going to commit to praying for these names and praying for you. And so in this last moment of our time together, as the worship team continues to play and sing, whenever you are ready, just bring these names up to the front, anywhere on the front of the stage.